0: Okay, thank you very much, uh, Stacy, for that uh, very generous introduction, which of course has hugely raised the stakes for me. So thank you for that. Um, uh, seriously, uh, thanks to Stacy and to Paloma for uh, putting today together, for for inviting me, and everyone else who I'm sure in the background is part of the organ- organisational work. Um, Thank you to Victoria for giving a great uh, opening talk and, and for the shout outs, very kind of you. I'll try and reciprocate. And also I just have to, uh, I have to just congratulate you on one statement you made in the discussion, which I never thought I'd hear, okay? and that was when you said, um, I feel that when I turn to the humanities, I'm on firmer theoretical ground.
1: <laughs> I've got
0: to tell you, it's like, wow, the grass always looks greener than that. <laughs> um, so, I personally, I, mean, yeah. I, I lay like that little patch of territory right, right between uh, the humanities and the sciences. That's where I feel I'm on the firmest ground. But, but, sorry, did you want to say something? <laughs> no, no, I mean, uh, I
1: mean uh, uh,
0: it was not, um, yeah. I know you were being flippant.
1: And, uh, and and, we, uh, we are accumulating way too many empirical data with, without theory. Yeah. I think that's a major problem with cognitive neuroscience. Yeah,
0: that's interesting. So yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, and, and I, I, I knew you meant it, uh, sincerely. Uh, uh, so, I'm ju- I think this isn't part of my talk. <laughs> but I'm just throwing out the complimentary thought, of course, that... Um, you know, uh, not all theory in humanity is, is equal. Shall we do that? <laughs> <laughs> all right, enough of that. Gosh, what a note to start on. So, um, here we go then. So, when I started to think about immersion, which, you know, as, as for I'm sure everyone in this room, is an extremely familiar idea in a sort of folk psychological sense. So, it's one of the ways in which we talk about our experience of being engaged with narratives. Of Various sorts, including film narratives. Um, but one of the first thoughts I had, and I'm sure it's not unique to me is, you know, is what we're talking about really a single, well-defined, unified phenomenon? Right? Or does immersion function as a kind of loose word which captures a number of things which often come together, a number of processes, which often kind of come together in the same space or the same experience, but aren't necessarily quite the same thing? Now, if there's anything to that sort, right, then this is, uh, you know, a classic uh, uh, problem for a philosophical approach because one of the things that philosophers do, at least philosophers of a certain stripe, is they disentangle things, concepts, and the phenomena that those concepts pick out. So, you know, the spirit of today's talk is really. Uh, well, I'm not sure I'll grace it with the thought that there's a hypothesis here, but there's a hunch, right? Uh, an informal hypothesis that, um, that um, maybe one of the things we need to do with the idea of immersion, uh, amongst other things, is to figure out whether, you know, actually this is an umbrella term for two or three distinct things, which we ought to spend some time uh, disentangling, uh, first of all. Um, another, um, and by the way, the image, I'm guessing that this is very familiar to you, at least the Trekkies in, in, in the room. This is the holodeck, which is, uh, I think, a part of the Star Trek universe, which only appeared in the TV series um, uh, of the show. But, uh, but it strikes me as a pretty good uh, fictional imagining of a central aspect of the idea of immersion, which is the idea of being completely... Uh, inside uh, um, an imagined space to the point where it has kind of palpable reality to you. I think that's what the, the holodeck conjures up. Um, one of the other ideas running through the talk is the ambition to, as I put it here, find the mechanisms behind the metaphors. Right? So we have a whole family of related metaphors alongside the metaphor of immersion. So, absorption, engulfment, being transported, getting lost in a story, etc., etc. And the thought is, uh, which goes along with the first thought, that maybe we need need to do some disentangling, that uh, to the extent that we believe in psychology, the science of psychology, we should be able to discern some particular uh, psychological processes which... Those metaphors, those looser everyday metaphors, are pointing towards. And here's a quotation from Richard Garrick in the book *Experiencing Narrative Worlds*, which I think is probably the fir- the first occasion when the, the metaphor of transportation, another uh, metaphor for the experience we're talking about, got um, played out in a kind of technical sense. Would yeah. you agree with that, Stacey? Yeah. It, yeah. Then it yeah. gets operationalized by the right. students with tests okay. and so on. Right.
1: Okay. It's
0: exactly. So, so but here's a passage from the first few pages of uh, Garrig's book. Um, Examination of the target experiences can make evident the profound appropriateness of the metaphors. Examination of the metaphors in turn can reveal important insights into psychological structure. So I had that quote there just to say, you know, I'm not putting down the metaphors. Right? I'm not saying that I'm interesting. I'm not important. That all that counts is the science, right? That's, that's not the thought. Uh, but the thought is, is that they're not everything, right? That the, the metaphor of immersion, amongst other things, is where we begin, but it's not the end point uh, of, of inquiry. And that's good news, I guess, because otherwise we should be leaving right now. <laughs> okay. So. Now, um, in a couple of minutes I'm going to be, I guess the guts of the talk are going to be devoted to that project of disentangling. I'm going to suggest that we can, um, we can talk about three varieties of emotion. Um, perceptual, imaginative, and narrative. So I'll come to that in a few minutes, but I want to, I want to sort of first put on the table uh, a modest and minimal proposal, which is, so to speak, uh, a solution in advance, right? To so I'm sort of jumping ahead beyond this the the uh, the the background analysis of what immersion might uh, how that might be broken down. And so what I'm about to say here very much connects actually with something that came up briefly in the discussion after Victoria's paper, and that is the thought that. Um, how do I want to put this? A core part of what we call immersion or maybe even the foundation of what we call immersion has to do with attention. First and foremost it's about the channeling of attention, right? So in other words, before we start to talk about disbelief and pay-leaf and a-leaf and various other newfangled um, speculations about what's happening to us epistemically, in other words, what happens to our belief state when we become absorbed or immersed in a fiction. I'm saying, I think we can get a long way just with thinking about how our attentional resources are being redirected and channeled by fictional works, including um, including films. And by the way, they need to be fictional works, but that's another distinction which we won't worry about right now. Here's sort of two uh, models or ways of ways of modelling the idea that I'm getting at. Okay, so, um, so the, I'm drawing here on I think well-established ideas from uh, different parts of psychology to put an emphasis on the power of attention in, in shaping our experience. So I'm going to talk about two things. And um, at least the first one, I imagine, will be quite familiar to many people in this room, if not the second one. So, I'm going to talk about change and in inattentional blindness. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about um, something that Gehrig, the author of the book that I was referring to a few moments ago, uh, talks about in relation to what he calls anomalous suspense. Okay, so let me step through these two ideas. So, first of all, change and inattentional blindness. I imagine pretty much everyone in this room will have at least bumped into this idea, if not actually have a pretty, pretty detailed understanding of it. So, uh, change and inattentional blindness, not quite the same thing, but tightly connected with one another. This is a body of, uh, of experimentation in perceptual psychology associated above all with uh, Dan Simons, he's a uh, a Harvard psychologist, which demonstrates how extraordinarily selective visual attention is. So the most famous experiment in the paradigm is the invisible gorilla experiment. And in this experiment, roughly speaking, the experimental subjects are given the task of watching a group of people toss a basketball between each other and their task is is to count the number of passes right, that the ball makes as it goes around <coughs> the players. So they sit down there performing this task and through the middle of the space walks a person dressed as a gorilla and then the question is how many of the experimental subjects spotted the presence of the gorilla and the results are very surprising <laughs> Uh, I think, roughly speaking, 75% of the subjects fail to attend to to notice the gorilla at all. Okay? So there's lots of other variations on this experiment. This is an example of inattentional blindness, okay? so the idea is there's something right in the middle of your visual field, but because you've been given a task, right? Which puts your attention elsewhere in the visual field. In other words, watch the ball, right? You do not, or you do not reliably, far less than chance, will you see, will you see, uh, will you see this very striking visual feature? And it's also a moving visual feature, right? So you'd think that that would make it even more likely that your attention would be drawn to the gorilla. But if you're given a task set, right? which doesn't take you towards it then it's very easy to miss it altogether change blindness well let me come to that right now so change blindness is the related phenomenon whereby uh... changes in the visual array are not tracked by viewers or subjects okay so uh... this you may may or may not have seen this is a demonstration then of Change blindness in action. Uh, I'm sorry, it's an advert, <laughs> uh, but um, but it sort of make, it demonstrates it very uh, concisely. Okay, so let me just run this. It's only about a minute.
1: To test just how much attention the attention-stealing design of the new. Hey, let me just get the volume down <laughs> a little bit. How do we manage this
0: before? Bottom right as the area. Oh, I see.
1: Arrows.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Advanced technology. Let's try it again.
1: To test just how much attention, the attention stealing design of the new Skoda Fabia actually steals, we left one parked on this ordinary road in West London. We wanted to see if it's sharp crystalline shapes, bold lines and lower wider profile would attract the desired level of attention. Will the 17-inch black alloy wheels stop passers-by in their tracks? Will the angular headlights attract the attention of other road users? Will a crowd gather to check out its fresh, sporty look? Well, not quite. But did the attention-stealing design distract you from noticing that the entire street has been changing right before your very eyes? Don't believe us. Have another look. Did you spot the van changing to a taxi? How about the scooter changing to a pair of bicycles? Or the lady holding a pig? Let alone the fact that the entire street is now completely different. Didn't think so. So there we have it. Proof that the new Skoda Fabia is truly a (laughs) tentative. All right, so I'll mostly let that that
0: demonstration speak, speak for itself, but you can see how um, there's a sort of a, an equivalent to the task set in the invisible gorilla experiment. There's an equivalent here, right, in the sense that the advert says in various ways, keep looking at this car mm-hmm. and specific features of this car. And because you're given that task, um, you're unlikely to spot... I mean, I'm sure many of you spotted individual changes in the background scenes going on, but I would... Strongly suspect that most of you didn't, uh, didn't catch more than a very small fraction of them. And it is a surprise at the end when, when the, when the advert summarises the extent of the visual changes across the sequence. Yeah. So that's uh, change blindness in operation. One uh, nice little addition to the idea of change blindness, and the third bullet point there, is the idea of change blindness, blindness. That is to say... <laughs> Uh, our resistance to the fact of change blindness. So there's yet there's another body of uh, uh, research on the fact that when you confront people uh, or you test them on their uh, uh, predictions as to whether they would have noticed the gorilla moving through the image, they're very bad. Most people most people overestimate. their their visual capacities, to an extraordinary extent. So that's the idea of change blindness. That's that's kind of metacognitive error. Okay. So, remember the idea here, then, is is that I'm using a couple of existing, well-established examples from psychology to suggest that we can get a long way with the idea that immersion has to do with the channeling of our, our attention. So what the example we have have here from this body of research is the idea that, you know, if our task is set in a certain way, right, we can miss a whole lot of other stuff because we are so visually focused on particular aspects of the visual display. Let me turn to my second example now, and this actually comes from the research of Richard Garrick, who I've already, already mentioned a couple of times. So... One of the things he talks about in his book, and there's been a fair amount of discussion of it subsequently, is what he calls anomalous suspense. So anomalous suspense is the case of feeling what feels like suspense, having having a suspenseful experience, but where you fully know the outcome of the story in question. So anomalous suspense arises, for example, when you're very familiar with the film, Right? So when you're watching Psycho for the 25th time, right? and you know exactly what happens, you know exactly how it's going to happen, but you find yourself kind of whipped up by the film, nevertheless. Right? You find yourself anxious at certain moments, wondering. You know, your, your body seems to be reacting in, in, in the same way. Okay? So that will be one example of anomalous suspense. Another case would be where it's a real-world story and a well-known one. You know what happens to the Titanic, don't you? Right. You know what happens to those planes during 9-11. Right? So how is it that, that these works, films, or um, uh, novelized dramatizations of these events, how is it that they, they seem to work upon us, nevertheless, in eliciting suspense? So that's what he means by anomalous suspense. Suspense where, according to our prior theory of suspense, we shouldn't be experiencing it. And his explanation is this, is that uh, when we are narratively transported, that being his favorite metaphor, there's a kind of compartmentalization of knowledge that goes on. So we, we, so to speak, bracket the fact that we know what happened to the Titanic, or that we know that Norman's mother is dead etc. We're able to, to, as part of the process of being transported by the story, we're simply able to put in the background, in a, in a very substantial sense, those parts or those items of knowledge. And it's as if we don't know those things as we have the experience. So I'm thinking of this, this is my way of putting it, I'm thinking of this as a, as a kind of inner attention. right? So if the case of Inattentional and change blindness has to do with literal visual attention towards a distal stimulus. I'm saying I think what uh, what Gehrig is describing here has to a similar capacity to selectively attend to certain things that we're interested in and that we know, and to entirely bracket and set aside other things which, in some sense, we know. And a more recent uh, phrase that. Gehrig and one of his young colleagues, Matt Besdek, has used to talk about this idea, which I think is a very nice phrase, they talk about attentional tuning, right? which is the idea of engaging or being attentive to a represented world uh, goes hand in hand with a kind of disengagement from some aspects, at least, of the real world and your knowledge of it. Okay? Or, again, I'm using the word engagement here as a kind of uh, synonym for the idea of paying attention to. So not paying attention to the fact that you know certain things, certain other things are going on around you. Okay so to try and summarise this kind of opening uh, uh, set of, uh, or opening kind of proposal that I've put on the table here. I'm saying that that we might think of immersion as a matter of attention, or as I put it slightly more mildly, a few minutes ago, we might think of as the foundation of the immersive process as having to do with the channeling of of our attentional resources towards representation. Remember, part of the idea here is, is, you know, our cognitive capacities, our attentional capacities, are limited. We've We've only got so much brain power so if a complex, represented world in a film or in a novel starts to take lots of your attention, there's not going to be as much of it available right, for what you'd usually, usually be attending towards. Right? So, so the thought would be that just that redirection of your attention might go a long way towards explaining uh, many features of emotion. And Stepping back a little bit in terms of kind of theoretical considerations here. You remember what uh, Vittorio said about the, the greatness of the humanities in terms of its theoretical <laughs> acumen. Um, uh, you know, part of the four areas is, is, uh, is based on the, the uh, desirability of parsimony as a theoretical principle. In other words, before we start to multiply lots of different theoretical entities and new concepts, Let's just see how stripped back, how far we can get with, with concepts which we know a lot about and have a lot of confidence in their reality. Okay? Now, of course, there are other important theoretical principles like describing the world accurately. And sometimes parsimony has to be set aside when it proves to be the case that, well, is more complicated than the theoretician would like it to be. Nevertheless, you get the idea that as a starting point you know occam's razor uh, it's not a bad idea to see how far we get with a small set of well established ideas all right so let me turn now to the second uh, block of my paper and there are basically three uh, sections of my paper i get you know if, if the uh, if the teaching police at the university of kent were here they would be saying you should have said this should have had a slide at the beginning saying first of all I'm going to talk about these things now i'm going to talk about and then I'm going to talk about why so I should have done that before uh, so i talked about some models of what immer- immersion might be and now I'm going to um, step back a little bit and do that disentangling work which I said I thought was important and then there'll just be a small third part of the talk where I relate the uh, notion of immersion with a very importance and long-standing idea in relation to film viewership, which Vittoria mentioned, and that's the idea of transparency, transparency of the film media. Okay, so varieties of immersion. As I've already said, um, the thought here is that there might be three senses or types of immersion going on, which are often conflated when we talk about being immersed in the experience in a rough-and-ready, everyday sense. So let me begin by this idea of perceptual immersion. And I have no idea how time is going, so let me... Um... Um, you have a good
1: 15 minutes
0: okay. OK, good. So when I talk about perceptual immersion, one might think of virtual reality systems as a kind of paradigm for what I have in mind, OK? So, I'm no expert, by the way, (laughs) on virtual reality, so I'd love to be um, educated and corrected uh, on all the many things that I'm about to uh, get wrong. But I take it that um, that where we are with virtual reality systems is that they work on the basis of what I'm calling here kind of audiovisual haptic engagement, or, or perhaps immersion, if that turns out to be the right way of thinking about it, in other words, they engage us at once, visually, also in terms of hearing, and also in terms of not only touch, but proprioception. In other words, bodily orientation, our sense of balance. That's why I use the word haptic rather than tactile, right? To capture all, all of those things. Now, I take it that what's significant about those virtual reality setups Right, are the following things, and maybe there's more to say, but at least these three things, that we've got a multiplic- multiplication of the sensory modalities which are in play, systematically in play. So relative to film, or at least standard filmic experience, we've got the addition of proprioception and touch. Um, also it's important that uh, in these virtual reality setups there's, there's an emphasis on the integration of the way the sensory stimulation across the modalities is working. So you could have a setup, and there are probably experimental artists who use VR devices in this way, where you're getting uh, sensory inputs from these different modalities and they're not integrated, they're kind of pulling you... Uh, in contradictory uh, directions, but I take it that that's not part of the standard way in which the technology is used. And very importantly, I think such VR setups are characterised by what I'm calling sensory saturation. And that is simply the idea that forever any given sensory modality, right, you, can u- you, can, you can use more or less of that channel up. Right? So what do I mean by that? Well. When you watch an ordinary film, like this afternoon, those of us who are going to watch um, Shadow of the Doubt, right? um, that film, even in a, even in a tremendous cinema, right, with a nice big screen and a great sound system, it's only going to occupy part of your visual frame. And of course, part of the history of film, are, amongst other things, are efforts by uh, film technologists to create filmic images which fill and absorb more and more of our visual field. Right? So something like IMAX would be the kind of recent paradigm of those attempts. Right? And even with IMAX, right, it's pretty unusual to have a, a, an IMAX experience where you, know, you literally have nothing outside of your visual array beyond the image itself. And for one thing, you can, you can, you can turn your head. And you can, you can take in other parts of the, the environment around the screen. But, of course, that's, that's what VR doesn't let you do. It totally saturates, or so to speak, occupies all of, your, all of that sensory channel. Or at least I take it that that's the, that's the ambition. A uh, quick historical aside. Um, so, André Bazin, the very famous one of the two or three most important film theorists there have been, in the estimation of many. Um, he has a short essay called The Myth of Total Cinema. Okay? And what he's talking about is the idea that um, in the 19th century, when cinema as it came to be was still in its gestation, it was still an ambition, the technologies were still being figured out. So long before we had what we now call cinema, it was very clear from the writings of many of these inventors that they envisaged something like what we now call VR. Right? So here's the quote from, uh, from Bazin. In their imaginations, the 19th century inventors of cinema saw the cinema as a total and complete representation of reality. They saw in a trice the reconstruction of a perfect illusion of the outside world in sound, colour, and relief. Where he mentions relief, there he's clearly thinking of 3D, which would have been on the horizon around the time the first the first version of 3D would have been on the horizon around the time of the writing of this essay. So um, that's just to say that uh, that although we think of VR rightly as a recent technology, as a kind of idea and ambition, I think Bazan is right to say that it's it's a much older uh, idea. Okay, so I've talked so far, then, about perceptual immersion. Where roughly the idea, then, is is that there could be um, technologies of representation which entirely occupy our perceptual capacities. So there's nothing left outside. Now, what about imaginative immersion? Well, one way of... um, stating the contrast between what I've just been talking about, perceptual immersion, and the idea of imaginative immersion, is to think about reading right, as a context which, or, or a practice which can generate powerful immersion. And we have a little instance of it, actually, right at the beginning of Shadow of the Doubt, where uh, one of the daughters in the family, the, yo- the young daughter, uh, is immersed... <laughs> Uh, in reading a book and she's bothered by the fact that other people want things off her, right? She doesn't want to lift herself out of this immersed experience reading the book. So I say that this is a contrast then to perceptual immersion because, of course, <coughs> this is working through not through any kind of perceptual prompt. I mean, of course, you have to perceive, in some sense, the words on the page, through Braille, right? But that's perception working in a very different sense to the kind of perception that was at stake a few minutes ago when I was talking about perceptual emotions. So what I'm getting at is it seems that we have a mental capacity to represent very richly and in great detail in a way which, which we find very intense uh, represented worlds but which is quite independent of a perceptual prompt in the form that we get it in film, or even more emphatically in the form that we get it in something like VR. So that's the sense in which I want to say, look, let's recognize that there are two, at least, these two capacities at stake here. One is an imaginative capacity, and can work just as well through, through verbal prompts as through the perceptual prompts that we're familiar with through film. And what does this come down to? Well, I mean, you know, as many of you in this room will know, you know, th- there's much to say here and I'm just scratching the surface here, but at least two things that one would want to talk about to fill this this part of the story and more richly is the forming of mental models of situations as a central part of what I'm thinking of as um, imaginative immersion, In other words, we take certain cues and prompts we're given through a verbal text or indeed film, and we use our existing knowledge of the real world to kind of fill those out and combine them to generate uh, a model of the situation that's being described. And more particularly, or as a part of that, um, there has been much debate, as many of you will know, on the idea of simulating characters' states of mind and body, or, as I put it here, better yet, uh, simulated uh, embodied mind states. Okay? Um, uh, and, of course, we've heard from Vittorio in his first talk the, uh, we've, we've had one exposition of the idea of embodied simulation in, in great detail. Um, Victoria was kind enough to uh, allude to me <laughs> as, as a theorist behind that idea in, in film and, and I'm grateful for that. But let me in turn point you towards Torben Gradal, a Danish film theorist who I think has really kind of made this very central to, to his project. So in his book Embodied Visions... He says this, so the quote's at the top of the slide here. To understand the character's situation in depth is to simulate his or her dilemma with eyes, bowels, mm-hmm. heart, cognition, and muscles. So I like the way the word cognition is kind of buried there, amongst all the, uh, the, the embodied stuff. OK. So although I've been making reference to films right, as uh, amongst those things which can act, act as prompts to imaginative. Uh, uh, immersion right? and that's, that's correct, it's not an accident I'm using the literary case to insist upon the thought that this dimension of immersion right, doesn't have to have a p- perceptual prompt neither you may notice, does it have to have a narrative prompt right? so I've been careful in this slide not to use the word narrative, because I'm going to come to that now <laughs> as my third variety of immersion. Before I come to that, let me just say, the word I do use here is situation. And the idea is, is that a situation, you know, a location, a set of agents in that location, right? that's sort of one step shy of what I'm thinking of as a narrative. So the thought here is, is that we can represent things to ourselves imaginatively, in a, in a rich and powerful way. right? That's one thing. Then we can also represent things narratively, and that adds another uh, dimension to, to the picture. So let me now focus on that. So I want to suggest that narrative immersion, or, as I find myself putting it uh, on the fly, that aspect of immersion which arises from... Uh, from narrative, I'm saying the thought is, is that this arises from our instinct for causal understanding, and it's not an accident that I've used the word instinct. Right? The suggestion is, is that it's a very basic and powerful feature of human cognition to perceive an object or one event and to want to know how it fits in a causal chain. Now, where did it come from, and what's going to happen as a result? Right. Now this is where we can uh, we can have. Uh, well, do you think there's time, Stacey, to watch a Probably not, because I've been...
1: about eight minutes. You could take a little longer.
0: <laughs> okay. You It'll right. The number of questions. Sure. Okay. So maybe for the for the purposes of modulation, we'll we'll just watch a little action then from from the film, so I want to just use a section of uh, Shadow of a Doubt to exemplify this idea and it's a very familiar idea, you know, this is is not rocket science and it's not news Uh, but just to kind of have before us a concrete example of how powerful narrative desire works upon us, you know, the urge to see, right? Uh, something seen through to its conclusion so there's just a little section of uh, Shadow of a Doubt which I think can be seen in, in, in reasonable isolation so I'm not going to spend time uh, a lot of time setting this up for those of you who <laughs> don't know the film but essentially
1: <laughs>
0: this character here little Charlie she's, she's wanting to find out um, um, what was in a particular copy of a newspaper which her uncle has uh, removed and hidden away. Okay, so we're seeing the beginning of her search for this missing part of the newspaper. So. So this is the uncle's room she suspects that he's kind of torn it out and thrown it away.
1: Torn up. They have papers in the library, new ones and old ones. Miss Crockett will get them out for you. She won't even notice if you cut out a little bitty recipe. Oh, it's not that important. Times the library close. If you read as much as you should, you'd not come now. Oh well. If I think about it. Maybe I'll go tomorrow. Really ought to go to sleep then.
0: Pause it. I was going to show more, but I think it will take it take up too much time. But you get, get the idea, and I will say a little more in the slide. Um, so, you know, we've known about this kind of gap, right, in the, in the information available to us for some time in the movie. But at this point, filling that gap becomes a more urgent issue for the character and to the extent to which embodied simulation is, uh, it has been triggered in us, it's also more urgent for us. And incidentally, one interesting thing about... Uh, I mentioned a paper by uh, Besdek and uh, Garrick a few minutes ago where they used the phrase attentional tuning. One thing they talk about in that paper is they talk about hot spots in the course of a, uh, a narrative where one's attention gets even more focused on the work than at other moments. And what they have in mind and what their research shows that it's in highly suspenseful passages, like the one we've just been looking at, where, uh, where attention seems to be maximally focused. <coughs> and they test this by, for example, reaction times to uh, audio probes. In other words, you know, sounds are made you have to react to while you're trying to watch... The, uh, while you're trying to watch the film okay so um, what we see in this sequence and I'm just saying this is exemplary right, of the way narratives in general work is we see an interplay between little Charlie's goal right, which is to fill the causal gap to find out what this damn thing in the newspaper is and a variety of obstacles right? so she keeps thinking we keep thinking now now we're going to have the solution, right? But no, we're not going to have the solution, right? Uh, uh, I won't say more to, to amplify the, uh, the spoiler even more than, than I've already uh, done, but um, you, you understand the, uh, the dynamic here. Okay. So I think putting, putting these three things together, right, these three varieties of immersion together, One thing we can say is that orthodox cinema, so not the kind of new developments that uh, Vittorio was talking about, but just orthodox cinema, blends and balances these three varieties of immersion in a very stable configuration. So when we watch a a mainstream movie in uh, the context of standard orthodox cinematic uh, projection, we're getting a very rich perceptual experience which prompts our imagination, and it does so in relation to narrative cognition in particular. Right. So I'm saying, as a matter of principle and psychology, these are distinct things. I think, or at least that's, that's the case I'm arguing. But the medium of film, or at least mainstream filmmaking, puts those three processes together. And that's one reason why it may be counterintuitive uh, to pull them apart. Um, so I'm saying that orthodox cinema is a kind of stable configuration meaning a kind of blending of these aspects of our psychology through a particular technology but clearly other configurations are possible so VR is a different configuration where perception is playing a much bigger role (coughs) and mobile phone (coughs) spectatorship is another another kind of variation on that configuration all right I'll just spend two minutes, yes, on, on this last idea, okay. Deserves a lot more time, but two minutes is all, I, all I've got. So, it um, seems to me that uh, thinking about the notion of immersion in films uh, overlaps with, or comes into contact, another long-standing, uh, very central idea in film studies and film theory about the character of filmic representation. And that's the idea that somehow photographs and films uh, are transparent, that's the operative word, uh, in a way that other kinds of visual depiction, uh, paradigmatically, paintings, are not transparent. So here's one way in which this uh, argument can be made. um, uh, And using the language of Richard Volheim, with a painting, we see, we see a de- that what's depicted in the surface of the painting. Okay. And as a result of that experience, says Valheim, we have a twofold experience, meaning we are sim- simultaneously aware of that which is depicted and the painterly surface. Now, according to one very uh, dominant line of thinking about film images, it's very different in the case of film. Right? In the case of a film image, we see through the image to that which it depicts, and we have little or no apprehension or awareness of the perceptual—sorry, the representational vehicle. I say wrong. <laughs> I think that's a, a quite wrong way of thinking about standard cinematic spectatorship, but it is a very standard way. Um, I won't dwell on that argument. <laughs> Rather, what, let let me do this instead. Let me pose this question: whatever whatever's the situation with orthodox film and film viewing, and whether that's transparent or not. What about the case of VR, virtual reality setups? You know, are they transparent, or is it conceivable that they could become transparent when the technology has been kind of refined a little bit more? And I think that that's what you know, that's what this idea envisages, right? The thought that there could be a technology which is so perfected right, that we enter this represented world but it's, it's totally transparent to us. That is to say, we have no experience of right, the fact that it's a mere representation. It feels a solid and our perception is completely saturated by... The inputs that the representation is giving us. So I've added transparency as another kind of feature, right, of VR experience beyond those ones that I was talking about earlier. In other words, I don't think that uh, VR setups as they currently exist deliver transparency, but I can see that they might do in principle. Uh, uh, and with enough refinement technologically. Even if they did and this is my last thought um, that wouldn't make the holodeck the matrix as I put it here. Right. So here's the thought um, even if we had a technology like the holodeck right, which completely saturated your perceptual inputs so you couldn't experience anything outside this represented world and it did so completely transparently Okay, so, you had no perceptual awareness of the fact that it was a mere representation. You'd still know, you've just walked through the door, right, that you're engaging with a representation. Of course, that's not the Matrix, right, in the film. The Matrix is, is an illusion in a much deeper sense, that not only are you being duped on a perceptual level, right, unless you're Keanu Reeves, right? You don't get to know right that that's all it is, but it's just uh, a, a, an illusion. Um, so um, so the, the, the final thought then is, uh, even if um, even if uh, we invented a technology which was characterized by such complete and powerful perceptual transparency, that wouldn't per se be changing our belief set uh, towards the experience, which ties into my earlier idea that we can do a lot of work here in relation to immersion, just with the idea of attention and without touching on ideas of belief and disbelief. And there I will stop rambling, Thank thank you.